Revelation. Why are we going through the book of Revelation? Well, because it's God-breathed. That's why we're doing it. For all the reasons that we've just sung about, the promises, the promises, things are going to happen. The, the fact that we need to, to see the Lord Jesus Christ revealed as to who he is now, as to what he's going to be doing in the future. And we have that in this book of Revelation. And that's why we're looking at it, but I just want to warn you one more time, don't get caught up in the symbolism. Don't get, don't get caught up in looking to piecing out everything that's going to happen in, in the future when, uh, after the Lord, the Lord raptures his church. It's not, that's not what the book is about. The book is about the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's about revealing him and his work. And even though it is a book of what's going to happen in the future, that's not why we're doing it. We're doing it because I want to see Christ. And I'm going to show you Christ. Let's have a a remembrance of the scene from last time that we were together. Some time ago, I've had a, a cornea transplant between now and then, so it's been a while. But let me tell you what's been happening. We're in the throne room of God right at this moment. That's where we are. The the scriptures have taken us there through uh, through, uh, John and the Lord has taken him up into this area of the book of Revelation and the book of Revelation up into the throne room. Around the throne room we have seen 24 elders. At last time we looked at the fact that they are the... 24 elders representing the raptured church. We have cherubim who are described here as four living creatures. We also have 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands of angels. That's the type of thing when you say when you can't count them. And all of us are singing. And we're all singing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches, and wisdom, and strength, and honour, and glory, and blessing. Why are we singing those words? Why are the angels singing? Why are the cherubim? Why are the 24 elders? (coughs) Why are we singing? Because last time we saw that the Lamb of God was the only one worthy to take the title deeds of the earth, to take the judgments that were to come, Just go back with me to Revelation chapter 5 and we'll read a few verses back there just to put us back into the picture of where we are. (coughs) Revelation 5 verse 1. I saw the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or even to look into it. This book, this scroll, the title deed to the earth and no one was worthy to take it out of the Father's hand, out of God's hand and to accept that responsibility. And John's response was this great Grief, this great wailing. Who is going to accept this title deed to the land, to the, to the whole universe? And he says in verse 4, Then I began to weep greatly, because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And John was just there weeping greatly. But he was told in Revelation 5.5, he was told, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Last time we looked at who is that? Who is the the lion that is from the tribe of of Judah, the root of David? And we came up with the conclusion, none other than the risen Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so we sing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and blessing. 
And so we were left singing, praising the worthiness of the Lamb of God. But now we come to Revelation chapter 6 and the Lord Jesus Christ has this scroll in his hand. He's taken it from God the Father. The scroll with the seven seals, he begins to open it. He who is worthy, he who alone is worthy, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and he opens the scroll. What is written under each of the seals? Well, actually, what is written on the scroll is not read. The judgments that are there are in the form of visions. And they increase in intensity until planet Earth becomes a giant smoking battlefield. It's littered with the decaying remains of those who died in their deluded, rebellious rejection of Jesus Christ. Have you rejected Jesus Christ here this morning? There's no sitting on the fence, either you're with him or you rejected him. There's no, wait a minute, I haven't made a decision yet. Yes, you have. You've said no. If you have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ or have never come to know him as your Lord and Saviour, this is about and could be about you. But if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour, then we're singing and you're singing with me, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom. Chapter 6 begins the period of seven years that we know as the tribulation. This tribulation is broken up into two sections, two sections of three and a half years, and we'll have a look at that briefly in the book of Daniel. The last three and a half years being known as the Great Tribulation. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 24 that if those days were not cut short, no one would have survived. In chapter 6 this morning, we're going to see the six, uh, six of the seven seals opened and terrible judgments happen with each seal. After the seventh seal, starting in chapter 8, there are seven trumpets. After the seven trumpets, there are seven bowls, all judgments on an unbelieving world. Now, I've tried to show you this in these handouts that I've given you, just to explain them to you. The first one, the overview of future events, I'm not going to go through it, but that's the foundation that I'm preaching on. That's the foundation that I have from the Scriptures that I'll be teaching in that foundation, in that area there. The other sheet you have is a, an outline of Revelation from chapter 1 to 22. It shows you the events that are happening in heaven. It shows you the wrath of God poured out on the earth. It shows you the church's rapture. It shows you the second coming of Christ. It shows you God's final message to mankind. And down the bottom it shows you everything that happens on this earth during the book of Revelation. Up the top, events in heaven. We've seen God's throne in chapter 4. We've seen uh, the seven-sealed scroll and the opening of it. That's what we're seeing now. That should be chapter 6. Someone's made a mistake. And you can see the wrath of God poured out on earth and you can see the seven seals followed by the seven trumpets, followed by the seven bowls. That is an outline of the book of Revelation that I'll be following. It's not in order. It's not in chronological order. It skips around. We've got to remember that heaven, where John is and where the Lord obviously is, there's no time up there. That's eternity. They don't work on time. They don't have a wristwatch. This is everything that's going to happen. The first seven seals actually covers the whole of the tribulation period. But we keep going back into it to have a look. It keeps getting more extensive as we open the, the, the bowls and as we open up the trumpets. I have a look at the seven trumpets. 
and we see how things are done. The first lot is just an overview. But the Lord has it in his hand. So everything that happens from now on until chapter 19 happens as a result of starting to open these scrolls or this scroll. We do get heavily into symbolism. I don't want you to be scared of symbolism. We use symbolism every day for different things in our own language. But it is symbolism that's of something very real and very terrible. And as I said before, don't, please don't get caught up in the symbolism. That's not what this book is all about. Yes, it is a future, but it's the revealing of Jesus Christ. That's what we're looking at. The first symbol we see are very well-known symbols. We've, we know about them. People down through the ages, even today, call them the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And even that's wrong, because the word apocalypse, people think of this ravaging of the earth. And although that will happen, remember right back, the word apocalypsis is, means revelation. In fact, it's the four horsemen of Christ's revelation. This is where Christ is revealing himself through these four horsemen, the four horsemen of Christ revealing himself and the judgments of this, on this earth. We're going to spend a little bit more time on this first horseman than the others because it is important that we understand who this is. And he's revealed to us in verses 1 and 2. So even though the scroll is opened, even though the first seal is broken, nothing is read. John says in chapter 6 verse 1, Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures saying as with a voice of thunder, come. I looked. He didn't read. He said, I looked and behold a white horse and he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. This is what John saw. But what does it mean? Well, on the surface, it looks like it might be someone really nice. He's, a, he's riding a white horse. We all know that the good guys wear, uh, wear white hats and, and ride white horses. He even had a crown on his head. At the outset, you think, this is a hero on a, on a white horse with a crown. And we continue to sometimes think that when we read chapter 19, verse 11. You might like to go to Revelation chapter 19 because the Lord himself returns in that chapter <coughs> and if I read 19.11 to you it says and I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and wages war and a further description he has a sword and he goes about killing and so some people identify the rider of chapter 6 as Jesus Christ. They're both on a white horse. They both have crowns. But that would be a mistake. Because the context is different. In chapter 6 verse 2 we're looking at the beginning of the judgments of God as Jesus Christ opens up and allows these things to happen and in chapter 19, we actually see the end of these judgments. Christ is going to carry a sword in chapter 19, not a, a bow as this writer does. But I want you to understand it is significant that this writer is on a white horse. And he does bear a resemblance of Jesus Christ in chapter 19. They both ride a white horse, they both wear crowns, even though they are different crowns. In chapter two of verse, uh, chapter 6, it's the word Stephanos. It means a crown of reward that this chapter 6, verse 2 writer had on. While in chapter 19, verse 12, it's a diadema. 
the crown of kingship that the Lord himself had this crown of kingship coming down on a white horse. And so this suggests to me that this writer in verse 2 of chapter 6 is someone who is like Christ but is not Christ. I wonder who it could be. Well, the breaking of this first seal, we're introduced to the reign of the Antichrist. He has many names throughout the Bible. Daniel chapter 7, which I uh, will look at a little bit later on, he's, he's called in there the son of perdition. He's called the man of sin. In 2 Thessalonians, he's called the lawless one. Jesus Christ in Matthew 24 calls him the abomination of desolation. With this breaking of the first seal, we begin to see what the world will be like under the Antichrist. He's going to come on the scene of the world and he's going to be a one world ruler. Now I don't know when this, when this is going to happen. I just have no idea the only one that does is the Lord himself. No one knows the day or the hour except the Father in heaven. Except I can tell you, it will be after the rapture. After the church is taken to be with Jesus Christ, after the, the, the bridegroom comes to take his bride to be with him, the Antichrist will be revealed. So what do we know about this Antichrist? Look at verse 2. He's riding a white horse. He comes in peace. He has the appearance of a hero. He has the crown, even though it is a crown of reward. He's able to take control of the world in what we would call a bloodless coup. He, there's, no arrow, there's no arrows with his bow. He's able to slip in as a peaceful ruler the fact that he comes in peace is signified by that bow and no arrows. That is, that is a sign of peace, particularly in the ancient military days when someone wanted to surrender. The captain rode to the opposing army holding up a bow with no arrow. It's a sign of peace. And this rider comes in peace. He says, peace, and the world is going to fall for it. And in verse 2 it says he's given a crown. He doesn't take that crown by force. It says he was given that crown. I want you to remember that the Lord has just raptured the church. Millions upon millions of people have disappeared in the twinkling of an eye. You talk about a crisis the world has never seen before. And here's someone who comes on the scene and says... We have to put it all together. No more nationalism, no more country against country. Let's all work together to solve the world's problems. And it sounds attractive. And it will be attractive for a time. There will be unprecedented peace in the world. He even signs a seven-year treaty with Israel. No one's been able to do that. He comes along and Daniel 7 tells us that that's what happens. For three and a half years there'll be one government, one religion, there'll be great peace, but it'll be false peace. It'll be godless peace. And it won't last. Turn with me to Second Thessalonians, please, chapter 2. Of course, the Apostle Paul <coughs> mentions what happens quite a bit. And in these verses, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 to 12, Paul is talking about the coming of the lawless one, the coming of the Antichrist. And Paul says, in verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason God will send them strong delusion that they shall believe the lie 
that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. When this man comes along, the lawless one, as Paul calls him, there'll be deception among those who perish because they didn't receive Jesus Christ. And not only that, God will send a strong delusion that they will believe that lie of the Antichrist. The rider of the white horse is Satan's masterpiece and counterfeit of all that Christ is and claims to be. And I want you to remember, Antichrist is not Satan. As we go through the book of Revelation, you will see an evil trinity. You will have Satan, you will have the Antichrist, and you will have the beast. Right now we're being introduced to the Antichrist, the coming of the lawless one. And I want you to notice that it's in according to the working of Satan. And this Antichrist will have all power, all signs and all lying wonders. And so it's not surprising that billions of people will be deluded by the Antichrist. But again, I'd say not just the fact that they will be deluded by the Antichrist, but that God will send them a strong delusion. And the reason he does is that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. As I said, even Israel signed a treaty. Let's turn to chapter 9 in Daniel. just going to read a, a couple of verses and I'll try and explain them as quick as I can. Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. The book of Daniel talks about, particularly from chapter 9 onwards, talks about the tribulation as it is concerned with the Jews and Daniel 9.27 says then he shall confirm a covenant now I haven't got time to go into the he but it is the prince who is to come the antichrist Daniel calls him the prince who is to come then the prince who is to come shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. Now I can't go into that, but it's seven years. It's one week of years. But in the middle of the week, after three and a half years, he shall bring an end to the sacrifice and offering, and on the wings of abominations shall be made shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. In other words, the Antichrist comes in, he makes a, a, a seven-year covenant with the people of Israel that they can now sacrifice again. The temple will be rebuilt, rebuilt. They'll be able to sacrifice like they've been wanting to do forever, like they're still planning to do, even today, to be able to sacrifice again. And the Antichrist will allow them, to have a, but at the middle of that period, in three and a half years, the Antichrist is going to set himself up as God in the temple. And it's called the abomination of desolations. And then peace will be gone. The true church is gone from the earth at this point. All restraint is also gone. I don't know if you realise that we as a church, the people of the church, the called out ones through the Holy Spirit, are restraining. We're restraining evil. When we're gone, it's literally all hell will break loose. The Antichrist is free to use his full power. So the first seal reveals the Antichrist and the fact he will come in peace. He will sign that treaty for three and a half years. He will be a great leader. There will be peace all over the place. 
But that peace will be broken. And we have the next seal that is broken in verse 3. When he, and remember that's the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, when he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come. And another, a red horse, went out. And to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth and that men should, would slay one another and a great sword was given to him. See, the real intent of the Antichrist is revealed now with the opening of the second seal. The red horseman takes peace from the earth. He doesn't give it. Even though the Antichrist came with a bow, no arrow, to show peace, peace, after three and a half years, the, the red horseman is going to take that peace. <clears throat> the empty bow is going to be replaced with a sword. I want you to notice here that the red horseman was authorised to do this. He was authorised by the only person who can authorise this, God. It says there, it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth. God's the only one that can grant that. And during the tribulation, especially in the last three and a half years, there'll be a series of wars and battles leading up to the Battle of Armageddon, which we'll get to eventually. This is where the armies of the East and the West meet in Israel. And they attack Israel. And Jesus returns to the Mount of Olives, his feet landing on the Mount of Olives, splitting the earth, in, in, uh, not in half, but splitting it. We'll see that in Revelation 16 and following. And the Lord will destroy the armies as he returns. <clears throat> and all this was granted to the red horsemen to do war. Then there was a third horseman. He had to do with economics. Verse 5. <clears throat> when the Lord broke the third seal, I heard the, living, the third living creature saying, Come, I looked and behold a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the centre of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not damage the oil and the wine. Today, we have famine in many countries. And even though I wouldn't call it famine, even our own country is under the, the auspice of no rain. But in, those day, in these days to come, these verses are describing a time there's going to be an economic collapse of the whole world. The scales symbolise food being weighed out carefully. It's in such short supply that it had to be rationed. If you were here, if you no, I won't say, if anyone might have been here during the, during the rationing in this country after the World War, I know my mum was, where they had rationed or food rationed out to them. It's nothing compared to what this is going to be. And verse 6 becomes a little clearer when we realise that the word denarii in Greek it was the term given for what one man earned for working one day. You worked a day, then you earned a denarii. In good economic times, one man working all day made enough money to feed himself and his family. That was the living expenses for the day. But in these times, one day's wage is not enough money to buy even one quart of wheat, which is only enough to feed one person. In other words, at this time, there's going to be people who are working all day only to make enough for himself, not his wife or his child. It's going to be a terrible time of famine and economic collapse. There's something very interesting here that I had to stop and think about. That's the last part of verse 6. Do not harm the oil and the wine. 
Why not harm the oil and the wine? That just seemed a little strange. So I dug a bit into the, the context of those times and came to realise that oil and wine was a sign of prosperity. Luxury to have oil and wine. And so this is a picture not only of a desperate poverty for most of the people, but it's talking about a group of people who are going to have luxuries, are going to have many riches, while the world is living in poverty. I see that happening a little bit today, that the middle class is shrinking. It's shrinking all the time. And our world is becoming more and more divided amongst the the very poor and the very rich where we have the very rich having more than the economic money of a a country, even today. Particularly in the third world countries. And so in the tribulation, a reason I think that is put in there is the rich will continue to have what they want, but the poor will be poverty-stricken. As I said, you see a snippet of that today. Countries who are so poor, yet there are single people who have as much money as that whole country has. And when we get to chapter 17, we'll see this typified by Babylon Babylon the Great, which I won't go into now, but it's actually typified, this poverty-stricken rich and poor So there's a famine. What about the fourth seal? Verse 7, When the Lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. I looked and behold an ashen horse. Now ashen, I had to look up, it's, it's pale. And so, and he who sat on it had the name Death. So I guess an ashen horse is a good name for someone called Death. Uh, pale, ashen. And Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. The rider is named Death. Following along behind very closely was a figure that's been identified as Hades. Death takes the body, Hades takes the soul. As someone put it, death rides the horse but Hades follows with the hearse. Death and Hades in the book of Revelation are put together and paired together quite a bit. In chapter 1 verse 18 we saw it. In chapter 20 we'll see it again. But as a result of opening the fourth seal, a quarter of the world's population will die. And again, I want you to notice that it is with authority. Death has been given authority to do that. And with the mention of Hades, it leaves no doubt that those who die are unsaved people. Now, figuring on the basis of the world at the moment, around 6.5 billion people, that would mean approximately 1.6 billion people die in one Horrific period of three and a half years. About 80 times the population of Australia. In Revelation 9.18, when we get there, we'll see another third of those left after this will also die. And so the two together, if you do your maths right, involves half of the world's population. 3.2 billion people die in the last three and a half years of the tribulation, through famine, through the sword, through pestilence and wild beasts of the earth. That's how they're going to die. That's We're told that in, in verse 8. Killed by the sword, a reference to war. Killed by famine and hunger. Inflation is out of control. Killed by pestilence. Obviously after war and after so many people dying, Plagues and diseases naturally follow war and famine. Killed by wild beasts. Maybe the wild beasts can't find food either and prey on the humans. 
This is the greatest destruction in the history of the world. A period of world history without precedent in its character, without precedent in its extent. It's certainly not a period in our history that's already happened, as some might like to believe. And it's certainly not a period that we're going through right now, as others might like to believe. It is a time that is waiting for those who are not taken up in the rapture. But you know, even after all this, it doesn't get any better. Verse 9. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe. And they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. So this fifth seal gave John a glimpse into the fact that this time of tribulation will also be a great time of martyrdom. There will be thousands upon thousands of people being killed for their testimony during this tribulation. You see, once the church leaves, every person on this earth, the moment after the church leaves, is unsaved. But many will still come to Christ under the preaching of the the 144th Jews of chapter 7, which we'll look at next time, the two witnesses in chapter 11, many will be saved. And that's what it says there in those verses. Those that had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they were crying out with a loud voice, Lord, we want revenge, is basically what they were saying. How long are you going to refrain from judging and avenging our blood? on those who dwell on the earth? How how long is it going to be before you destroy them all? And basically the Lord said, settle down, just rest a while. There are more that need to be killed. There are more that need to be martyred. There's more that need to be killed even as you have been. We're going to see in chapter 13 that the Antichrist goes on a terrible rampage to kill born-again believers during the tribulation. I'm not going to go into it now because we will do, but that's, the, that's where we have the sign of the mark of the beast and, and all that, and we'll get there eventually. But let me tell you that in chapter 13, the Antichrist wants to kill every born-again believer. This is a glimpse of who we call the tribulation saints and we see them asking God for justice and vengeance but God makes it clear in verse 11 that their sacrifice was an appointment. This was no accident. There are others that will be joining them. God has it all under control. He says rest for a little while longer until the number of your fellow servants and their brethren are to be killed also. God knew the exact number that needed to be, or that would be killed. See, even in the death of his people, God is in control. Amen? So I'm just helping Jordan to get some amens out there. Many are going to be slain for their faith before the Lord returns and establishes his kingdom. And he basically tells us that there. Yeah, sometimes it appears the enemy is winning. And if I, if I had a glimpse into the, the tribulation, you would, you would dare to think that, where's God? There are so many atrocities happening. But God will have the last word. There's no doubt about that. God will have the last word. 
And these group of tribulation saints that are clearly identified and will be identified with the great multitude in chapter 7. And we'll look at that next time. So we're given a glimpse of, of martyrdom amongst the born-again believers. And God is in control and he says, hold on, there are many more to be killed, but God is in control. Then we come to the sixth seal. It's not easy to say with a dry mouth. I looked when he broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair and the whole moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. This is a vivid description of chaos in nature. The whole natural world literally goes on a rampage. In Matthew 24, Jesus describes this same event. He says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. So the Lord's already described it in Matthew. But here we have the sixth seal being opened and what was going to happen. Now this, these six seals have carried us almost to the very end of the whole seven-year period of the tribulation. We have the Antichrist coming with peace for three and a half years and then the Great Tribulation is the next seals that are opened and then if you have a look at your sheet, you'll see the seven trumpets is just a culmination of what the earth is convulsing. And then the, the seven bowls is a culmination of people dying, all included in the seals, but all at different, uh, different judgments. And so we're carried almost to the end with these, these six seals. And during the end of the Great Tribulation, nature will be thrown into cosmic chaos. Great earthquakes, larger than we've ever seen before, will rumble through the whole earth. The sun becomes black as sackcloth made of hair. Note the word as. It's a word of comparison. The sun doesn't actually become sackcloth of hair. It looked like it was. This would produce terrifying darkness. If you've ever been out on the Nullarbor Plain and there's nothing around and you turn your headlights off, you cannot see your hand in front of your face. Terrible darkness. You can touch it. The sun doesn't actually become that. It's like it. The whole moon became like blood. Again, we use the, the, the word com, uh, comparison word like. It isn't blood. It's just whatever the disturbances are in the universe, it'll cause the moon to turn a deep, dark red. Then we have the stars of heaven fell to the earth as fig trees drop the late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. You don't have to have much of an imagination to... To understand that, just shake a fig tree at the end and all these figs come falling down, just like the stars falling, uh, heaven falling out of the, uh, or the stars falling out of the heaven, falling to the earth. Can you imagine the destruction of these comets as they probably will be at that stage hitting the earth? What devastation there'll be as God begins to shake the heavens then the sky recedes as a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. I want you to note that there's no like there. There's no comparison. Literally every mountain, every island will move. There will be a time of terror and anguish throughout the whole earth. How do you think the people are going to react to this? Look at verse 15. 
than the kings of the earth and the great men and commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? At one stage we get to it, it says that they actually shook their hand, their fist at God. You imagine all this happening. Here's these men and women shaking their hands at God. You think after seeing all these things and knowing the person, knowing that it was uh, him who sits on the throne and the wrath of the Lamb, that they would ask for forgiveness? You think that after all these things, people would fall to their knees and repent, not hide in the rocks and ask for death? just shows a wicked heart, doesn't it? And I'm sure people are doing that today. But all people who have not yet believed in Christ, who have refused his offer of grace, are the subjects of terrible catastrophe and they cry out in desperate fear. For those who defy the Lamb of God, there's no way of escape from his wrath. I like the bumper sticker that gives in essence uh, the essence of verse 16. It says, just simply, beware of the wrath of the Lamb. You can understand it if it was beware of the wrath of a tiger, but beware of the wrath of the lamb. And then you read chapter 6 and you see the wrath of the lamb. Even though there's a dark time ahead for the people of the world, even to the point where the people are saying in verse 17, for the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? This isn't a time for born-again believers because we have the blessed hope of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ who will take his church to be with him before that dark hour arrives. And we've got to say, Amen. Just turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. One Thessalonians 4. Again, Paul was writing to answer a question, what about those who have died who are born again believers? What happens to them? And this is what Paul's response was. Verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. And I love verse 18. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Where's the comfort? Well, I've just given it to you. You can comfort people in the knowledge that we're not going to go through that. We're comforted with the knowledge that we will be with the Lord. That he will, as our bridegroom, will come and take his bride to be with him so that we'll always be with him. The picture we've seen this morning is horrifying and frightening. It's our Lord Jesus Christ taking the title deeds of the earth and placing judgment upon those who have not accepted him as Lord and Saviour. It's not a hopeless situation. Great multitudes of people will be saved in the midst of the terrors of divine judgment, both Gentiles and Jews. Remembering, as I said right at the beginning, that the tribulation is a time of Jacob's trouble. It's a time that the Jews, uh, Daniel was writing about. But for those who deny Christ both now and in the tribulation, the words of Hebrew will apply, and I'm going to read them to you, the words of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, 26, 27 and 31. Just think about this. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, 
there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you that you have placed in our hands ancient words with promises that we know will happen. We thank you that we have a a book called specifically the Revelation of Jesus Christ. Lord, it's not a it's not a revelation that we we revel in. In fact, we are comforted in the knowledge that as born-again believers we are not to go through that. But we understand, Lord, as we read these that our Lord Jesus Christ has and will have a job to do. And I pray, Father, that you will give each person here who is a born-again believer great comfort in the knowledge that our Lord, as he opens the seals, won't be affecting us. But Lord, there might be people here that if the rapture happens, even this afternoon, will be caught up not only in the tribulation, but in a delusion, in a lie. And so I pray for those people, Lord. I pray that your spirit, who knows them only too well, will work in their lives, in their hearts, to the point, Father, that uh, they have nowhere to go but to you take their comfort away if they're living comfortably in the knowledge of their own uh, self. Do whatever it takes to bring them to that point of accepting your payment that you gave for our sin. And so I just ask, Father, that you would bless each of us here, comfort those who uh, need comforting, encourage those who need encouragement, and, Father, Speak to those who need salvation and I ask it in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.